Thanks for listening to the Pioneer Valley Church podcast. Our hope is that what you hear encourages your faith in the way of Jesus and inspires you to participate in what God is up to in the world. God bless. Mark chapter 2, verse 22, Jesus says, And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst and the burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. A little girl asked her mother, Mommy, why do we cut the ends off of the meat before you, we cook it? The, little girl told, asked her, the girl's mother told her that she had thought it added to the flavor by allowing the meat to better absorb the spices. But perhaps she should ask her grandmother since she always did it that way. So the little girl found her grandmother and asked, Grandma, why do you and Mommy cut the ends of the meat off before you cook it? Her grandmother thought a moment and answered, I think it allows the meat to stay tender because it soaks up the juices better. But why don't you ask your Nana? After all, I learned it from her and she always did, always did it that way. The little girl, getting a little frustrated, climbs up in her grandmother's lap and asks, Nana, why do you cut the ends off of the meat before you cook it? Nana answered, I don't know why these women do it. I did it because my pot wasn't big enough. <laughs> we can do things that we believe are the way they're supposed to be done. And we can do them from a point of authority even. Only to find out that the authority on the matter isn't actually with us any longer in our reasoning or our rationale of why we do the things the way we do them. We're continuing a series entitled Good News. And we're talking about the, the good news that Jesus comes to bring. And we're studying the book of uh, Mark, the gospel of Mark. And as we discussed, you know, previously, we've talked about repentance and belief and good news and kingdom and who gets to be a part of that. And now as we're moving into the next part of Mark, uh, Mark wants to bring us into some dangerous territory today. Some, some of the kind of territory that's subversive in its nature in the kingdom. See, it's a kingdom that will challenge, we'll find out, the religious establishment, the controlling practices that are enforced, the extra-biblical rules, in a way that will end up getting Jesus killed and many of his followers. And Mark's going to tell us some of the reasons why this Jesus and his kingdom and his followers are so threatening to the powers and the rulers of their day. And he may be asking us to reflect on our own willingness to follow Jesus over the long-established rules and to be willing to wrestle with why we do the things we do. Let's take a look together. Mark has introduced us uh, to Jesus. He's told us that his message is one of repentance and belief and good news and kingdom and the kingdom come near. And we've, we've gotten to see some of the, the types of people that he's calling, the disciples that he's calling, right? This kind of ragtag bunch of, of would-be kind of misfits, they get to follow Jesus and learn from him. Uh, but we've also seen the last couple of weeks, we've seen the kind of people that get access to this kingdom, the kind of people to which the kingdom extends itself, people who are on the outside of the religious establishment, those who are considered not good Christians of their day, right? Or good Torah followers of their day. 
uh, those who would be unclean or, or not, not worthy of the kind of kingdom as they imagined it. And yet Jesus is here extending his kingdom to that. And we've begun to witness some of the reaction of those power holders. And they're having this reaction to the kingdom. And Mark is going to show us to the extent, the extent to which they will go in this reaction. We're going to look at a couple sacred institutions of their day. Practices around fasting and Sabbath and Gentile relationships and family are all going to be challenged and reframed and reestablished by Jesus. And Mark is suggesting that those who place their allegiance in Jesus above all would follow suit. We're going to read a lot of scripture. So just a little warning to stay with me. And it's going to feel like a lot, and that's okay, but just hang in there. I promise I'm going to try to bring it into some reasonable conclusions and observations for us that I think is going to help our study this week. Amen? All right, Mark chapter 2, verse 18. Now Jesus, now sorry, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so as long as they have him with them, so as long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the, wine, the skins and both wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. Chapter uh, 2, verse 30, 23, on, that sa- on, one, on one Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields and his disciples walked along and they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, have you never heard, read what David did and his companions with, when, when they were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them all, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Another time, Jesus went to the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then, He asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save a life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger, deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts and said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and it was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. You might think that these are just some kind of random stories of Jesus that Mark just throws in there along the way, but they're not. They are placed and crafted in a timeline that Mark is telling us in his gospel very, very intentionally. You see, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they get a bad rap often in the gospels, right? And they were certainly misguided at best and maybe downright evil at worst at times. But they were also people who knew the Bible. And they knew it well. They knew it better than any of us in this room. I guarantee it. 
And they took it serious that God was holy and that he called his people to be holy. And they, they wanted to live under that holiness and represent that holiness that they saw in Torah. They actually believed if they could get every Israelite to not just obey the Mosaic law or the Ten Commandments, but actually to obey the Levitical law, the law for the priests, they thought if we can just get everybody to obey the Levitical law, then the Messiah will come, he'll topple Rome, and we'll all be okay again. They wanted to be a holy nation, a royal priesthood. The problem is that the way they went about ensuring that everyone was holy was through enforcing extra-biblical rules and regulations. And here Jesus takes on two of the big ones, fasting and Sabbath. Now, there was only one thing higher than Sabbath in their worldview, and that was temple and the temple worship. And Jesus is going to get to that later on in the gospel. We'll get there too. Fasting in the Old Testament was a command to be observed in the, the yearly calendar of the Jews, but really, it was really only one time that we see it, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. It was a day of repentance. It's called the Sabbaths of Sabbaths, when they would refrain not just from working, but from all food, from everything that they do. And they would focus on the repentance that God had come to offer Israel. This was the main day of fasting. There are some other days that are referenced in the Old Testament, and it's a bit up to debate of maybe it was four times a year or maybe even six times a year at the most. But, but really, we can see at least clearly one time a year that they were commanded to fast. The Pharisees fasted two times a week. And they were kind of the gold standard of the day of what devotion and righteousness looked like. And they were calling all other Israelites to fast two times a week like they would. As an identifier of you are on the inside. You are righteous and you are devoted because you fast like we fast. And so they're looking at John and they're going, okay, we don't like everything he's saying, but at least he's fa they're fasting like, like we fast. And they're looking at Jesus and his disciples, and they're like, mm, we don't like what you're saying, and we don't like how you're behaving. Because you don't look like us, and we identify what devotion is. You see, their tradition of fasting was there to reinforce, really, the value of repentance, which sounds good. Like, man, if, if fasting is about repentance, then let's fast twice a week. And let's get everybody else to fast twice a week so we can get the Messiah to show up. Sounds like a pretty rational argument. However, it became a measurement in which to judge others' righteousness, devotion, and authenticity. How can this Messiah be calling people to repentance and not expect them to fast two times a week? Extra-biblical rules always become measuring sticks. How can you be a faithful disciple and not share your faith in this particular way? How can you be a faithful disciple and not give this certain amount of money on a regular basis? Do we have some of those measuring sticks maybe? You see, we have to be careful not to make up rules that the Bible doesn't give us. Because even if they're motivated from a place of wanting people to be more devoted, wanting people to do good, they always lead to legalism and pharisaical criticism of others every single time. And if we're honest, they're only there because we're afraid that if people have a little too much freedom, they might not obey. And then what would that reflect about us and our message? So if we don't enforce these cultural expectations, they won't, they won't do the right thing, and they won't be right with God. I've felt these things. 
And I'm just going to share for me, not for you, but for me, I felt these things towards other people. I've, I've scrutinized other people's conversion experiences. I've scrutinized other people's devotion after their conversion. And it's so easy to go there, especially the longer you're faithful, the more you're working on things, to, to lose the heart of Jesus and to start taking on the measuring stick of your brothers and sisters. That's where I can go. Jesus decidedly not fasting the way the religious establishment expected him to fast was not just considered rebellious or prideful. It was considered an act of discrediting their power and authority. And they, in turn, try to discredit his authenticity as a rabbi. Jesus fasted. We know that. And he actually taught his disciples to fast as well. Fasting wasn't the issue. Jesus was placing fasting back in its rightful place in the life of a follower of Jesus because the why you fast matters more than the performance of fasting itself. We have to examine our practices, why we practice the things we do. And it's not always to just then give up the practice. We may not have to give up the practice, but we need to wrestle with why we do the practice. We may need to mature in why. And that may inform how we then practice fasting or reading or praying or singing or serving or fellowship or baptizing or any number of the things we do. Are you with me right there? We have to watch out for our desire. This is what Mark's trying to get us to wrestle with. We have to watch out for our desire to discredit other Christians who aren't living up to our personal rule of life. It's something Jesus had a few words for, for those who would take that posture towards others. Just like that, we have to watch out not to give also credit to everyone who professes to be a Christian. Jesus also took that stance. We've got to have eyes, though, that are fixed on Jesus. Thoughts that are fixed on Jesus because he is ultimately the author and the perfecter of our faith. He's the one that we give our allegiance to, not culture, even if it's a Christian culture. If it's not producing more of the love of Jesus and more of the kingdom of Jesus, then we have to ask why. Why do we do it that way? And we have to be willing to change because we're disciples of Jesus. And so we're always discerning where is Jesus in the matter. And if it means that I've got to change to be more like Jesus in this matter, I'm willing to do it. We have to wrestle with this individually and as a community. What will we say yes to? What will we say no to? The norms from the world that reject Jesus and the religious world alike. Then he takes on Sabbath. This, this, I don't think we really have a parallel for this. This is the high holy day of the Jewish week. And, and especially for devout Torah followers, it's hard for us to make a parallel of what Sabbath meant in their culture and still does for many Orthodox Jews today. It's really hard for us to understand what the Pharisees and the teachers of the law thought of something like Sabbath. Because we don't really kind of have that approach to a particular day of the week. Sunday is really not how we approach Sabbath the way that they did. Are you with me right there? Sabbath is, of course, a command in the Old Testament. We see that it's a command to rest, to refrain from work, 
to worship God by participating in the rhythm God himself practiced at the perfection of creation. It was a command that was considered so sacred that there are actual laws in the Bible to protect that command. Exodus 31 says, hey, whoever does, not, whoever does work on the Sabbath is to be put to death. So that's, that's pretty serious, right? It was a day to bear witness to God's creation of the world and to reflect to God and all of God's nature that there is a God. All of God's creation would see through his people. There is a God in this world. He is good. We should know him. We are not made for work, but for God. That was the practice of Sabbath. Sabbath had come to, though, be protected by extra rules along the way. And many Orthodox Jews still have these rules. The Bible has 613 old te- uh, commandments in the Old Testament. Later would come what's called the Midrash and the Talmud, the writings of the rabbis on how to approach these, these commandments in the Torah. And just Sabbath alone would have 39 rules for what you could not do on Sabbath, 39 categories of what was considered work in the Talmud. Some of those categories would include things like winnowing. Now, I know we're all really good at winnowing. We all practice winnowing consistently. Let me just, if you don't know, maybe you don't winnow that much. Let me tell you what winnowing is. <laughs> winnowing is when you separate the grain from the chaff, right? So this is winnowing. This is, uh, this is something, something from the uh, Talmud. If one has a handful of peanuts, this is not a direct quote, in their paper-thin brown skins on the peanuts, and one blows the mixture of peanuts in the skins, dispersing the unwanted skins from the peanuts, that would be considered an act of winnowing according to the Babylonian and Jerusalem Talmud. You just worked on Sabbath by blowing out those skins of your peanuts. It goes into all kinds of details about what you can and cannot do. If someone is injured on Sabbath and you come along and they're injured, you can kind of help them, but you can't provide medical help. Like you can give them a bandage as long as it doesn't have any medicine on it because that would be considered work. So they're, they're protecting this thing that they value. Does that make sense? how many steps you can take, what you can do with your body, how you can relate to others. And then they have Jesus. And here's Jesus, and he's walking through the grain fields with his disciples, these, you know, rough and tumble kind of guys that are, are already kind of outskirts, or out, outcasts as it is. He's walking through the workplace of the day, the grain fields, and he's just picking heads of grain and eating them. He's winnowing on the Sabbath. And this just infuriates the religious insiders. Then he's healing people on the Sabbath. Luke 6, 6 says this guy's, it was his right hand and, and, and he heals it. Maybe this was the hand that this guy did work with God. Jesus is taking this guy and he's actually restoring him back to be able to participate in life and do work because work's not a curse. But we're not made for work. But he wants this guy to be able to work and to enjoy Sabbath with a healed hand, praise God. But Jesus is transgressing all kinds of customs, all kinds of rules that these law keepers had set up because they were keeping people from experiencing the kingdom of God. And he would transgress every single one. Now, Jesus wasn't out there breaking the law of the Torah, just to be clear. Like, he was breaking the laws that they had set up on top of the Torah. He was breaking the the laws that had been put on top of the Bible. 
And he was reframing what it was all meant to be. Take Sabbath. He says, this is a gift for man. Man isn't made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a gift to man. Mankind is made to, is not, is, is, sorry, mankind is given the institution of Sabbath, not to serve the institution of Sabbath. Are you with me right there? God gave a command. But instead of obeying that command or letting other people not obey that command and deal with the consequences of them not obeying that command, they created all kinds of rules to protect why people should and have to obey that command, to produce a certain kind of outcome. And in the process, they missed the heart of God. And the people who took such a, such a course also missed the heart of God. Sometimes we try to protect a good thing with more rules. And those rules become exclusionary practices that keep people from experiencing the good things that God wants for them. And we have to wrestle with that. And Mark wants us to. You see, in the kingdom, Jesus wants it to be inclusive. But it's an inclusive exclusivity, as we say, right? All are welcome to follow the one Lord Jesus. Jesus wants the gates of the kingdom to be wide open for anyone. Anyone to come in. The the road is narrow, but the gates are wide open. Are you with me right there? Legalists want to narrow the road and then narrow even further the type of people that should be able to be on the road and then shut the gates and make sure that they're able to be on the road before they get in through the gates. Progressive Christians want to open the gates and widen the road. The road is Jesus. And you can't open him up to more than he was open to. There are some backstops. But you also can't close him off and narrow him down to something he's not. This is the kingdom of God. And he is the king. And he gets to define that kingdom, who's in and who's out. And you may not like it. It may not sit with your sensibilities. It may challenge your traditions or our traditions. It may force you to be made new again. Even, in, even though you're older in years, you may go, I got to be new because of this way that Jesus is bringing. But if Jesus says, if, if, if that kind of person or this kind of person can get into the kingdom, They can be a disciple. We've got to decide which side we want to be on. Are we going to be with Jesus on that matter, or are we going to hold to our traditions? If he says, this kind of rulemaking or or burdening people with unbiblical extra rules is wrong, and it's not the way of the kingdom, then you and I have to figure out if we want to be in his kingdom at all or just kind of establish our own kingdom and appropriate his image along the way because it makes us feel safe. You see, we make rules to keep what we value safe. And that's not all wrong. You got to hear me on this. It's when we place them, those rules, at the same level of scripture and the commands of God, and then we use them to judge others, especially who's in and who's out, instead of judging that based on what Jesus teaches. Then we've crossed over into 
Pharisee land. We've all paid our omission at that point. And we're in danger of becoming, he says, he called it whitewashed tombs. Just dead man's bones, like just nothing to you. You look good on the outside, but it's nothing inside. It's not the love of Jesus inside. And we run the danger of serving an institution, a club, an organization rather than the kingdom. What was the response of the power holders of Jesus' day to him disrupting their rules and norms? They want to kill him. This, it says in verse 6, the Pharisees and the Herod went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. They wanted to kill anyone who would confront their traditions. This isn't, let's fire him. This isn't, let's disfellowship him. This isn't like, hey, let's cancel him. This is kill him. This is old wineskins going, we don't want new wine. We're going to burst before we get new wine. And they go out and they plot with the Herodians. Let me just tell you, the Pharisees didn't have anything to do with the Herodians. They were as far, because the Pharisees were more almost like a political sect. The Herodians were the opposite end. It was as far as far left is from far right in our culture today. They didn't have anything to do with each other, but they were pretty unified on getting rid of this Jesus guy. Let's destroy him because he's challenging our power and position. You can feel unified or passionate about things in the political or social world. It doesn't mean that it's the kingdom. You might be out to protect the power of a certain group and end up being antichrist in your allegiance altogether. We've got to discern carefully. Mark wants us to discern carefully. This kind of message and behavior towards the system of the world begins to attract all the wrong type of people. Again, in chapter 3 and verse 8, it says, When they heard about all that he was doing, many people came to him from Judea and Jerusalem and in Amia and the regions across the Jordan around Tyre and Sidon. And if you know anything about the people in Tyre and Sidon, they considered that Gentile territory. So Jesus is doing all these things. He's redefining the boundaries of who's in and who's out. He's demolishing in a very submersive way all the extra biblical rules. And people suddenly outside of Jerusalem are going, we might be able to get into the God of Israel. And they're coming from all over. The unclean, the outsiders are traveling to go get with Jesus while the insiders are kicking him out and plotting how to kill him. Sick people, hurting people, poor people, Gentile people. There's so much more we could say for uh, this chapter in Mark. We won't go into it, but just a couple other quick things. Jesus then goes in chapter 3 and takes these 12 outsiders, some of whom are social enemies of each other. Like you've got a guy who's working for the Romans as a tax collector, and you've got a zealot. The zealots were like, we are going to restore Israel and bring the Messiah through violence. They were, they, they were called people the daggers. They had these long, you've seen them in The Chosen, right? Like they just, they would go out there and take care of business in crowds, right? Do assassinations on people who were in cahoots with the Romans. Now those two guys are both being appointed as tribes, tribe leaders of the new Israel. This is what Jesus is doing. You don't agree politically, but let me tell you, I'm going to reconstitute you in such a way that you're going to lead God's people. 
He subverts the system of humanity that qualifies who's valuable and who's not, placing them on a rating scale. And he appoints those who would commit themselves to his discipleship fully, regardless, perhaps maybe in spite of how radicalized they were in their politics and calling them to surrender to that. Surrender to him, surrender that to him. Even Judas gets a spot. Judas is serving as a warning to all of us about trying to follow Jesus and straddle the fence of the world at the same time. Trying to follow Jesus and still hold allegiance to the powers of the day. He says, look, you'll get found out eventually. Eventually you'll sell out Jesus if you attempt to live like that. He goes and takes on family in verse 33. He says, here are my mother and brothers. Because his family's seeing all this happen. They're like, he's out of his mind. We got to go get him. They come to the door. Please send out Jesus. Jesus goes, who's my mother? Who are my brothers? And he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. He's subverting the navigating hierarchy of all of life in his day, the family unit. This is how you decided what vocation you were in, who you married, where you lived, etc. It was all decided by your family. And he's going, actually, now this is going to be the deciding factor for me. That's right. To say that was a radical move is an understatement. Some of us come from cultures where we get that. We're like, I could never do that in my family. Many of us, though, particularly those of us who were born in the West, we don't even get that kind of allegiance. In fact, we're kind of told the opposite. We're like, go West, young man. Like, go get independent. Jesus' day was so different. For him to take that kind of a stance, this was a radical move. This is the point as we get ready to close. Jesus will not be tamed, and nor will his kingdom. He will not be held down by rules that go beyond the boundaries of Scripture. He will not be shamed or cowed into some one-size-fits-all mold of a group. His kingdom is something superior, so transcendent that it will at times look like hate to those who hold power over your and I's life. Whether that be religious institutions or family for that matter, but this is good news. And it will feel very new to every generation that encounters it. The newness of grace, radical grace. The acceptance of all of you, regardless of who you are and what you've done in the kingdom. The newness of truth, that that things are not fuzzy, things are not ambiguous. Life is not as confusing as it's made out to be. Life can be made clear in the way of Jesus the renewal of all things, the newness of a savior who would show you the way of the cross so that you could join him in the cross and the resurrection that follows. The newness of forgiveness, the newness of his kingdom in a world of only limited options, the newness of new birth in the spirit, which we're gonna see in the baptism today, the newness of being freed from the slavery of sin. I've thought about this recently and I've thought about, you know, the ways at times I've, I've policed people's faith. Yeah. Hyper-scrutinized some yeah. of their story. Yeah. 
And I thought about this passage where Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he goes, you should be careful how you judge people. You should only use the measure you're willing to have used against you. And I thought about, man, I've got to be really careful because I don't want God to scrutinize my faith. I don't want him to police my conversion story. When, when did you really repent, Elias? Are you with me right there? I'm saying me. This is my struggle. You may not struggle with that. You may, you may get it clearly. I'm just telling you, this has been my posture towards others at times, and it's not right. I've got to have conviction. I've got to follow the scriptures. I've got to follow Jesus. That's not going away. I've got to have good theology and good practices to enact that theology. But I've got to be careful not to become pharisaical, pharisaical in the boundaries or the practices that I've adopted. I can't make those scriptural rules or rules that I've built around scripture suddenly to the same place of commands of God. I may have a rule of life that I go, man, these are things that I follow based on these commands. Uh, these commands. But I can't then go, these things are, are for everybody to follow. And if you don't follow them, you're not on the inside. Jesus is going to continue to transgress the boundaries that we set up. Especially ones that are in opposition to the commands of God. And those that just miss the mark of the heart of God. That, that even if they sound great and rational, we got good arguments for them. We may even have some really unified outcomes for him. He's going to transgress those. We have to figure out if we want to be a part of that kind of a kingdom. I think that's the question Mark is asking us as readers of his gospel. Remember, Mark is writing during a time when the persecution is happening. The powerful institutions of the day are promising safety and protection if they would just give their allegiance to them, whether that's Rome or to the old Jewish covenant. And there's much battle in the church at this time. Gentiles and Jews at this time, when, when Mark is writing, they're being separated based on ethnicity and based on religious background and practices. The people in the church that had the dominant imagination were placing more separation because, because of the tensions that were happening outside the church. And Mark is going to push against that. Push against relying on our institutions and powers to, de to determine our relationships. He's going to push against that by showing us the way of the kingdom in Jesus. Amen. Calling us to that kind of love that would accept all kinds of people and open up the kingdom for them and open up the kingdom for them to place their allegiance to Jesus. Are you still studying the Bible? Are you still studying the Bible to be challenged to follow Jesus more closely? I don't mean reading the Bible. I love the sentence when I hear from somebody, I was studying out this scripture this week. And it struck me and it challenged me. It disrupted my view of things. I get notes from people. I, I talk to Charlie sometimes or Rondi or I'll get notes from Bobby a couple times a day. Like just different people that are going, man, I'm studying this and it's, it's challenging me. Because it's calling me to change. It's calling me to take off the old garment and put on a new garment so that this new thing can have a life in me. I love that. Are you still studying your Bible? Not listening to sermons or podcasts, but studying to figure out where you need to follow the way of Jesus. Is it still new? Is the good news still new? 
Is it challenging newness in you? This is a quote as we get ready to land here. Not that either. Here we go. Timothy Keller, who just passed away recently. He said, sin is not just breaking the rules. It is putting yourself in the place of God as Savior, Lord, and Judge. There are two ways we can, you can be your own Savior and Lord. One is breaking all the moral laws and setting your own course. That's the story of the garden. And one is keeping all the moral laws and being very, very good. That's the story of the Pharisees. We can do things that we believe are the way they're supposed to be done from a point of authority, only to find out that the authority in that matter is no longer with us in that particular posture or that particular practice or the reason for why we do it. We may add rules motivated from the right place to protect people from the consequences, but when we add to God's word, we remove people's ability to mature in Christ. You see, the consequences of God's word are there for a reason. And if we, we set up such a protective cocoon around those consequences that we don't let people fall and struggle and maybe even leave and come back and wrestle in their faith, we don't allow them to mature. Sometimes we do things that we believe are the right thing to do, perhaps the only way to do it, the way that we've always done it. We may even attach language like biblical to it. You ever attach language to something like that? Well, that's biblical. It's like, well, how do you read your biblical? Right? Like, how do you read your Bible? Because that matters. Biblical dating practices, biblical conversion practices, biblical leadership structures, biblical music liturgies, biblical communion practices, biblical women's roles, biblical Sabbath keeping, biblical giving practices, etc. right? They had all those. And Jesus comes and redefines what biblical means for them. And I think we've got to be careful, flexible, led by the Holy Spirit in such a way and through the scriptures in a discernment that we, we hold to Jesus' definition of biblical. Amen. And I'm not saying we don't have biblical basis for much of what we do. I think we do. We come from a rich heritage. I'm certainly not saying that the Bible doesn't take a strong, clear stance on issues because it does. Very clear. And that should inform our faith. And it should inform our behavior. But we have to wrestle with why. Why do we do the things we do? Why do we, owe, why do we add these extra things? Rather than obeying the scriptures the way they're calling us to obey. We have to wrestle with that. And when we don't do a good job reading of the gospel, it will force us to wrestle. When we do a good job of reading the gospel, it will force us to wrestle. That's what Mark is up to in this. He's writing to insiders and outsiders who are wrestling for the way forward, and he's pushing back on all the temptation to go to the old way or to go to the powers that be, to let them set the course. And he's going, actually, you need Jesus. You need Jesus to tell you why and to set the course of the kingdom. That's the only way forward. And he invites us to examine why we do the things we do, the traditions we hold and the practices that we deem necessary. And he calls that good news. Amen. Amen.